Welcome to Triumph and Disaster, a show dedicated to manly creativity and culture. Brought to you by your host, Cameron McHarg. Hey guys, how's it going? This is Cameron McHarg, and this week we have casting director Billy DeMota on. He's actually more than a casting director. He's really another perfect guest for the show. He's, um, he's a poet, he's a musician, rock guitarist... Uh, writer, he's directed a little bit, um, but he's primarily a casting director. And uh, movies like Commando, Predator, Colors, The Crow. He's worked with guys like uh, Billy Bob Thornton, Dennis Hopper, Sean Penn, Ed Harris. He's worked um, in music videos with bands and musicians like George Strait, Dave Navarro, Ministry, Toby Keith, and the Ramones. Pretty cool stuff. So uh, we just talk about a lot of uh, a lot of cool stories in this one, and so we met at a um, little kind of a coffee shop kind of joint in um, in Glendale, California, and uh, we had lunch there, and we did it during the podcast. So apologize about that. There's a little bit of eating going on, and the first half of it is a little bit noisy, and then the crowd kind of cleared out, and the second half of it is uh, is much better. And we might even have another episode at some point because um, I really enjoyed it. We had a lot of good stories. So here we go. Billy DeMota on Triumphant Disaster. So we're on now. And I'm sitting here with uh, Billy DeMota in a uh, cafe that everybody knows him in like he's Norm on Cheers. Good place. We'll put out a little plug for them. The Wooden <laughs> Fork in Glendale on Brand Boulevard. So we sound like uh, a DJ. I sound like I'm doing a radio commercial. <laughs> yes. Don't forget to visit the Wooden Fork on Brand Boulevard in Glendale, California. You just like my intro guy. He's like, hey, it's yeah. Cameron McCug for the Trapping Disaster. I don't want to make fun of that guy because he does funny. a good job, but same kind of thing. So we, we were already shooting the shit a little bit. We were going to talk and kind of talk about what we were going to talk about, but it was already so fucking yeah, cool that we started you, talking about you just said turn it on so here we go so we were you were talking about a bunch of shit stuff well, that you, you were doing the last thing you said which kind of intrigued me is you talked about the movies of the 70s you're a big fan i'm a because, huge fan because i i tend to lean in that direction with the ones that i the movies that i cast um and uh you know i just did a movie called road to the well badass movie by a guy named john sivak who's uh um, a brand new filmmaker. It's called Road to the Well with um, with a new guy. He's not really new. He's been around for a while, but he's really starting to break through. His name is Lawrence Fuller, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's just it's a great kind of a road trip movie about a couple of guys that hook up after college. Uh, they haven't seen each other for a long time. They take a road trip, but bef- the night before the road trip. Uh, one of the guys is fucking a hooker in his car, mm-hmm. and she gets stabbed. And when his partner shows up, they see them both laying on the cement, bloody, with a dead girl. So they have to go on a road trip because they have plans. So they put her in the trunk. Well, the hooker in the, the hooker in the trunk throws a big wrench into the plan for their yeah, road. It does. <laughs> Yeah, that's not really, you know, doesn't but, make, it, doesn't, it doesn't smell very good at the rest stop. No. But movies from the 70s were fucking huge for me. They're actually why probably I'm living here. I've, actually, I've talked about this before in the show, but yeah. I'm sure like, uh, you, I'm sure you probably went to the drive-ins a lot when you were in. I did, yeah. 
And, uh, and there was the Mission Drive-In and the Geneva Drive-In. I grew up in San Francisco, and those were the two big drive-ins. And when we were kids, we used to go see a lot of Sergio Leone because my dad loves Sergio. Leone. Oh, really? At the drive-in? So at the drive-in. Amazing. Yeah, and we would go see, you know, like. Thank you. Fistful got of some dollars drop in here. Whatever. Thank you. That's me. Thank you. And uh, so your dad was pretty big in introducing you to a lot of cool he shit was, too. But then. kind of accidentally because he just liked action cowboy movies, you know, and he didn't know they were Italian. He was from Portugal. Oh, okay. So his he loved everything that was kind of Americana. Okay. So he was a big fan. So we went to go see a lot of those. Plus, we went to see a lot of horror movies in the seventies. You know, Steve McQueen. He was a big fan of Steve McQueen. So we Me saw too. the Blob. You know, uh, and uh, you know whatever else. Steve, The Great Escape. Right. Huge movie, The Getaway. I mean, some of the some of the classic. You know, French Connection. I mean. Those Dog Day Afternoon. Movies. Yeah, those are the kind of movies that sort of that I cut my teeth on. You know, and then moving into the 80s with like Raging Bull and, yeah, you know, Goodfellas and, you know, I mean, it's just yeah. 90s. You know, the, the kind of dark movie with a really strong message, uh, a more kind of a moral message. You know, you'd always think they were just good guy versus bad guy, but... There were personal dramas that were really, Yeah, it was very, very gray in some of those movies. Who, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Which I love. That so we're going to we're gonna eat right in the middle of this, so you guys are just going to have to deal. Yeah. Um, Having a salad right now. So, but it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't movies originally that you got started with, though, yeah. right? You're a musician. You're still a musician, but you started out primarily as a... Growing up in San Francisco in the 60s and 70s. You know, if you want to get laid, you play guitar. Right. So, I wound up, I started playing when I was 12, 10, 12 years old in bands. My mom taught me how to play the ukulele when I was a, a wee tot, I think probably seven or eight years old, because she used to play ukulele a lot. And I kind of transferred into rock and roll. I actually had a trumpet. But I played in the in the school band. School band, yeah. But I was such a fucking nerd. I had to get. I accidentally, and I used as accidentally in air quotes, lost the trumpet on the school bus, so I could get my mom to buy me a guitar. <laughs> and I started playing in bands, you know, from I probably like the mid '60s on. Uh, moved to Los Angeles, and you know, we had pretty good success in, in San Francisco, playing local clubs and stuff, you know. But still playing and working and not making a ton, ton of money, but it was just fun. Rock, right? You played rock? Rock and roll, yeah. We mm-hmm. All original stuff. So, and then, of course, to pay the rent, when we weren't playing original stuff, we would play in doing covers. cover bands, you know. Covering who? We did a lot of um, Motown stuff. Oh, really? James Brown, Ohio Players, OJs, um, Parliament Funkadelic. I mean, for us, if we were going to play live, we were going to play, if we are going to copy somebody else's music, we are going to do what we wanted to do. Yeah. Marvin Gaye, The Spinners. So when you came to L.A. a little bit later, was that like in the early 84. Okay. So it was not, wasn't even the 80s, it was before the 80s. Right. But you were here then for the, but I, I don't know if you were casting or you're still a musician when the huge no, boom I was, hit. I was still, I was still a musician. I was, um... 
trying to play rock and roll in Los Angeles. I came here because I thought it was going to be a big during the huge star. scene on the strip and everything. In the yeah, 80s. but the problem was is that it was right in the middle of. You know, I was here for a couple of years, and then disco kind of took over, and all the clubs that we used to play at started spinning records. You know, the bigger bands, the more established bands, were still playing all the club, the, the, the Rainbow. I mean, the Roxy, the the um, what was called Filthy McNasty's then, which became uh, the Central, which became Johnny Depp's place. Which you know, it's still there, right? Part of the the, the Viper Room. Um, we played a lot of those places. But then, like in the more like sort of the mid '80s, like when the big sort of hair metal scene kind of started, were you part of that too, or no? No, I mean I would go see. No, we were. I was a big punk guy, so we would go oh, see okay. a lot of punk band. I was friends with um, the Circle Jerks. They lived in my apartment building. No shit. And I became friends with. Darby Crash and with Flea and with um, Did you ever meet Henry Rollins? Henry Rollins, yeah, sure. Yeah? I mean, they were all hanging out. You know, I was living on the corner of Sunset and Larrabee. Uh, right right down the alley from the um, from the whiskey. It's great, thanks. Um, That's crazy. And, um, and yeah, it was it was quite the time. So, you know, I was there for the Dead Kennedy riots at the when they when when they were like a thousand people that showed up that couldn't get into the whiskey. Wow. They shut the whole fucking sunset. There was like 25 cop cars. People were throwing beer cans and bricks and everything. At the, I mean, it was crazy. It was a riot on the corner of Sunset and Clark, I guess, is where the... Yeah, I know where it is. Where the whiskey is. Um, but those are the days, you know, when <laughs> then the new <laughs> romantics thing scene came in. And, you know, I, I wasn't crazy about that. I loved Adamant because he was kind of like... I don't know if you remember Adamant. I do. Sort of a sort of a combination of sort of the new romantic kind of, you know, psychedelic first Depeche Mode right. thing, but with a little bit of a punk thing going on, kind of a tribal thing. Right. But that was the you know, all the Depeche Mode psychedelic furs uh, uh, you know, the new wave the new wave of yeah. A lot of English bands. Uh, which I wasn't really crazy about. But I was that whole time I was uh, trying to play but it was hard because it was all disco so I wound up getting into the retail business like all good musicians do when they're not, when they're not uh, <laughs> they had to eat and yeah and I became really successful at it and reluctantly I, I, I wound up um, getting into the retail business in, in uh, buying and selling uh, for a shoe store chain in Westwood, and then I got into the automobile business, and I wound up uh, as uh, in the sales department at Beverly Hills Porsche Audi in like 1984 when it was like all the cocaine during the big cokes, and, yeah, yeah, all the money know, rolling around, right? Yeah, and they, you know, I, at selling Porsches and Audis at the Don the Simpson and hanging out guys. at the Playboy Mansion, yeah. So you're doing okay, though, but not doing what you wanted. Right. You weren't creatively fulfilled. No, a friend of mine was was an actor, and he said, you should think about casting. I don't even know what that is. His roommate was a woman named Jackie Birch, She, uh, who's now, I think she's retired, but um, he said, you should talk to her, but she needs somebody to help her. 
So I went. So I met with her. We talked about it, and I kind of knew her already. And I said, "Yeah, I like people, and I like movies. I can do this." Yeah. So she put me to work. Um, in 1985, working on Commando. Commando. Uh, working, at, and we were also finishing a movie called. Blue City with Judd Nelson and Ali Sheedy, mm-hmm. uh, and another movie called Fire with Fire with Virginia Madsen and Craig Sheffer. They were like 19 years old. They must have been, yeah. And we were doing, um, we were doing three, like, so I just, she threw me into the fire, basically doing contracts and setting up appointments and booking travel and doing stuff like that. And the first movie I worked on all the way through was Commando, which is awesome. And, uh, Went on to work with her on about a dozen different movies. We did Commando, Predator, The Running Man, Three Amigos, uh, Project X, the, the, with, um, the movie with the chimps, and right. Matthew Broderick right. and Helen Hunt. It's Helen Hunt's actual, it was actually her first big studio movie. I have to ask you about Predator. Oh man, what a great because movie. Because I shit you not, I mean, it is, you know, it's an 80s action movie, but I, I think... I think it holds up today. As soon as, as soon as Arnold, the whole sequence where he, you know, he discovers the mud and he starts to fight him, and, and he, you know, he sets everything up and he lights that torch, and I still think that holds up. I think I, it still gives me goosebumps. Let me tell you why I love that, that so much. So well. I'll tell you a little, uh, a little predator story. Please do. I went to, um, I went to Mexico when they were shooting part of the movie. They shot it in Puerto Vallarta. Okay. And Joel Silver, who was producing the movie, bought like an acre of jungle just so he could blow up the fucking just jungle. Just so he could do whatever he wanted? Yeah. But whatever he wanted was basically flamethrowing the whole... I mean, strafing it with... with Napalm. Kind of. It looked like the beginning of Apocalypse Now. Um, so he was... Uh, and we had just finished casting the film. <laughs> I went down there because I had a free trip and I wanted to go and hang out. They put me up. I was hanging out with um, a lot of the cast and crew. Jean-Claude Van Damme was originally cast as the Predator. I don't know if anybody... Oh, I've read that. that. I have read that. But uh, because of his acrobatic skills, because he was... He came into our office and basically was hanging from the ceiling, you know, and loved... And he had a three-picture deal with Canon... Remember Canon, those the, the sure production company, but uh, he wasn't. Canon wasn't, was like the huge like action director action video right. kind of stuff. Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, yeah, right. Anyway. A couple of Israeli guys. I'll put that um, on the blog. Anything we talk about, I'll put it up so people can see what it is. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so Jean called. He had a deal with them for three movies, but he hadn't done them yet. So this was his first movie, uh, his first big action movie. Okay, but you couldn't see him. Couldn't see him because he had. A predator costume on. Mm-hmm. Every day, he would come up to. There was a guy named Bo Marks, who was a production manager, line producer. Come up and say, "Mr. Marks, please, can I please take off the mask because you cannot see my face." <laughs> and Bo Marks said, "You're, well, you're the predator. I, we can't." <laughs> right. Finally, John Claude went up to Joel Silver. He said, "Mr. Silver, please." May I please you, you? Can you make the mask so uh, so you can see my face? He says you're the fucking monster. Go back and work. Uh, go back and work. Just to Next. preface this, Joel Silver is 
a massive action movie producer. Right. Maybe the biggest, and, yeah. and has a large reputation for being Larger, for being a dick. <laughs> Uh, if there well, was, Billy said it. I know. <laughs> I'll never work for the guy again. So go ahead. Uh, so, so finally, he just kept. He said to Mister Silver, "I have no dignity. You cannot see my face." He says, "You're the fucking monster." I wound up sending him back to Los Angeles after I fired him. So, and the, I'm telling you the story because I want to lead up to that that scene at the end, the, the last half hour of the movie, right? So, which powerful. is so epic. It's, well, it's still so fucking good. They started to shoot because Jean-Claude had done a lot of the um, green screen at the time of blue screen where he was in the trees and you could see sort of the, the figure of the predator. Kind of jumping around. Jumping around the trees. Um, and they used all that, but none of the stuff that they used at where he's actually in costume, uh, none of that stuff they could use. Um so, because they, legally, after they fired him, no, I, I just think because it what didn't work out, it, it wasn't. They weren't crazy about it, and also because of his attitude and right. whatever, they just said fuck it. So, if John Claude hears this, he's probably going to come over and try to kick my ass because he's going to call me a liar. But <laughs> I was there. Uh, so, um, so, so we get back to Los Angeles, and they don't have everything shot because John Claude is gone now. They hire Kevin Peter Hall, seven foot two. Uh, he's a black guy since passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in Harry and the Hendersons. Okay. He always plays that he's in. The, he's a costume guy, kind of like I don't know if you know um, Doug Jones. I'm a friend of Doug Jones. I was just going to bring that up, but Doug Jones, the most played, famous guy that nobody knows, right? His exactly. Name, his face. Well, that he he did a lot of that kind of stuff that Doug Jones does now, and he was the predator in the end, but. They built the set six months later on a soundstage of 20th Century Fox. All that jungle stuff in the end with the mud and the sliding and the arrows and the things, all on a soundstage. No shit. So the reason that the lighting is so great and the camera work is so crisp is because they had the control of an interior that they built. Uh, they didn't shoot that in the jungle. They shot that in on a soundstage. So if you look at it again, you'll probably see some of the giveaways, but if you notice how clear and how well edited and how well shot and how how well paced it is because they had the time to in the control and how great kevin peter hall was as the predator yeah i mean that's the reason that it was that particular part you're talking about was so powerful i um we actually when i was a kid this i don't know this i can't really imagine kids doing this now but maybe they do in the country still but so I was telling you before, I grew up um, about 20 miles north of Seattle, kind of in the woodsy area. And when we were like only like 16, that's, that's about when this movie came out, just to give you an idea of how, what my age is. We, uh, we went camping. We'd just take off in a car, and we went out to the middle of this fucking like, you know, logging road out in the mountains. We'd go camping. We'd have to cross like three rivers and find this little sandbank. But long story short, we were we were putting like a horror mud. movie. <laughs> it could have been. We would cover ourselves in that mud and like you know, pretend like it was the predator. Like all kids do. It's awesome. Fucking loved it. Um. So yeah, do you did you meet Shane Black and stuff too when you're no. there? I met Shane Black. He's um. I think he's doing the new one. Um. Yeah, I think I read something about that. Bring yeah. it back. Now, Shane Black actually came in to read for us. 
even though he had a deal with with Joel already because he, he went on to write Lethal Weapon. He volunteered to read for it, or yeah, interesting. Well, Joel actually wanted him to read for it, I guess, to come to put him through the paces. You know, let me. Uh, he was an actor then. Oh yeah, before he before he, he became pro- he he sold writer. Lethal Weapon and then he took off, right? But right. As a writer uh-huh. and a director. Um, let me ask you this: When you just brought this up, because I have a lot of other things I want to ask you about, but when he read for you, like I, I, I fucking hate reading. I hate auditioning. Like, I'd like to be able to change my attitude about that, but uh, I'd rather, like, even even when I want to cast somebody, when I'm on the other side, I don't really like the processes very much. Like. I would almost rather sit down like in what we're doing and kind of get a feel for someone and just look at their previous work than, than to make them get up and do that. What do you? How do you feel about that whole process? I mean, obviously, it's what you do, but I mean... Well, the thing is, is that it doesn't make any difference how good somebody is, how well-trained they are, how right they are for the part. Um, there are certain nuances that you cannot... Um, determine until you bring them in front of you and they, there may be something that a great actor just isn't getting that you can help tweak to get I mean with Shane Black and that's where your particular talent as a casting, casting director does. Yeah. Is about. that's what I do with Shane though it was sort of like I think it was more he was reading with the other actors and so he, what, he's just being cool job, you know yeah um, you know because Joel wanted to make sure that 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 relationship was you know was solid I respect that. I think that's really, really cool. But I mean, the audition process is, I think, important um, for me. I think most actors I know love to do it. Well, speaking of that, when we uh, we spoke, except for Cameron, <laughs> I just put that out there. I'm trying to. I guess I just need to just keep keep in mind that it's. I'll just uh, send you an offer. <laughs> just have to keep in mind that you're in there to do the work. And just do the work, and then and that let, we're let on your fall. side. Yeah, exactly. I want you to be as good as you can be. I want you to get the job. I don't want to have to see nine, ninety actors for one role. I've man. I've told people this before. I worked for uh, as a reader for a casting director once for a couple. Re- it was a guy named Aaron Griffith. You know him, and uh, it was one of the most valuable experiences I ever had as an and actor. I used to compete for the. Uh, for the horror movie market, you know, when I when I wasn't doing Aaron. Yeah, movie. well, that it was a horror movie that I was reading him with, and uh, but it's true, like you really want people to come in and kick ass, and when they do come in and kick ass, you're so fucking excited for them, you know, and you learn so much. I, I think the problem now, though, is that there are a lot of I don't want to call them lazy, but I just think they're very well trained casting directors. They don't understand that. You don't have to see 20 people if they're all good actors on a different level or even half of them are good actors. If you work with them, if you if you give them direction, if you help mold and shape their audition, then it keeps you from having to see, you know, 20 other actors. It's better for you in the it's long run. It's better for us in the long run. And also, I think the actors appreciate the help. And some, you know, I have to tell you, there are times when actors come in and they completely choke. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of casting offices, I won't say most because I don't know how a lot of casting directors work. I can only I can only tell you what I see on TV and what winds up as good acting, which to me is always sort of like not the best. Um, I think that casting directors. Okay, did you want to say something? <laughs> 
okay, you're right. Where he's where he's interviewing. I know. We got distracted by a beautiful woman. So anyway, what are we talking? About? Oh, you talk about um, casting people and reading people. Um, yeah, I mean, I think actors appreciate and lazy. Oh, oh yeah, right. Um, that sometimes an actor will come in and choke. Yeah, and somebody will say, "Okay, great, thank you." Next, instead of seeing the potential there, having the radar to recognize. I mean, this comes from training, but yeah, it took me a while. But the one thing I knew I needed to know was how an actor's brain works, because and how they make their choices, and how you know where how they create their history. And for me, when I see that work being done, I don't say, "Okay, that was great, thanks." Next, just because they choked on the first audition, I'll say, "Okay, you're on the right track," but. Here's what I think you need to do: go outside, drink a, some water, mm-hmm. take ten deep, deep breaths, breathe, come back in, and do it again. Um, and keep this in mind, this in mind, and this in mind. Give them sort of minor adjustments. Uh huh. Things that, that I know about the character they may not know uh, that'll help them. And it makes that actor, first of all, it makes him better in that audition, but it makes him better as an actor in all auditions. Because they realize that it's not always them, you know. It's sometimes the, you know, it's sometimes it's the people on the other side of the table that just don't understand what they're trying to do. Yeah. No, I mean, don't get me wrong, their actors are just plain suck. But, you know, there's some that are, are, that you really want to try to get as much out of as you can if you see the talent. So speaking of that, and speaking of seeing the talent and, and being trained, when we spoke on the phone, I guess last week it was... You told me, and this impressed the shit out of me, and I don't know if this is common for casting directors or not, but you said you were going to be doing a, a weekend workshop with Howard Fine. And Howard Fine, just in case anybody doesn't know, is, is one of the big, kind of big league acting teachers in, in L.A. And you said you're going to be doing a, a workshop. And then, to, just today, before we got this started, we were talking a little bit, of, you were asking about me and my background, and I talked about the Strasburg stuff. And you said that you actually taught at the Strasburg uh, institute here in LA. So these are a couple things that I didn't know and I'm really fucking impressed with because anybody that, even if you're not an actor, even if not, you don't want to do that, if you have some of that training, well, a couple different things, you're going to be able to see and understand what is good or talent, even if they do shit the bed, like you said, when they come, you're probably going to be able to see something there because you have a certain awareness right. that you wouldn't have without right. that. You become, I mean, there's a certain sixth sense that you have, you know. But yeah, you can see through people a little bit because you know yourself a little better, I yeah. think. Um, you know, it, it started, and I don't think very many, to answer your question, I don't think many casting directors do do this, but when I was, um, I was in five years into my casting career, 1989, I used to... I saw so many great actors in my office, and every time I would turn the resume over, I'd say, Howard, fine. Ah. What's this guy doing? So I went to audit his class on, on a, a Monday night. Yes, you can audit his class. So I saw amazing performances, great work. I said, Howard, 
how do you do this, man? How do you get this out of action? As a casting director, I would just love to know. Which says a lot about you, dude. That well, you that you you really want that that you care and you want that good you know, shit. It's 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 like uh, Napoleon Hill says, mastery. You know, the more you know about your craft, and the more nor, the more you know about about the, the 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 tools that you have to work with. You know, the better you can be at your craft. So. In order to improve or to uh, to uh, enhance my mastery, uh, he asked me if I wanted to join the class. And I said, you know, Howard, I'm not an actor. I, I've never done acting. I I played the tree in Charlie Brown's Christmas, and, <laughs> and, and then it's grammar school. And he said, uh, take the class, take my basic technique class. So I took his 12 week class, and after it, it's now called Foundation. And after the 12 weeks, he said, I'm not letting you go. You're going into my master class. And he, he put me right into his master class. He, and the funny thing is, if he hears this, he'll, he'll tell you it's true. He always used to pull me aside and say, Billy, you need to get out of casting. And you need to start acting. No shit. Yeah. And I was like, nah. You just like didn't have, the, didn't you know, have that you know, bug. I, I didn't have the passion that actors have. I love doing it. But not for a career, not right. for something that I think I could, I could turn into, uh, into a livelihood. And you know, frankly, I like paying the rent. So yeah, yeah. But anyway, but yeah. but I would do it anyway if I had enough passion. But I didn't. But uh, so I studied with him for three years in his master class, and I saw so many people in his class that had gone, had gone on to to do. TV series and, and, and movies and become movie stars. You know, he was the um, he was the onset coach for Brad Pitt in uh, an interview with a vampire. Oh, really? Uh, he was the uh, and I the the list is as long as my arm. The people that he's actually private coached and um, the work that comes out of that studio. And this is not a, a Howard Fine sales pitch. Yeah, kinda. Uh, <laughs> But uh, the, the work is just, is just phenomenal. So about three or four months ago, he's my Facebook friend, and he, pushed up a, he puts up a post about how you know, he's got a studio in, in Australia now. And he says, I'm coming back from Australia, and I'm gonna, when, I get back, when I get back, I'm going to do a, um, an intensive, a four-day master class intensive. And so I posted it on my Facebook page, and I said, anybody that hasn't studied with Howard needs to. Uh, it's uh, the best thing you can do for your career. And uh, he emailed me and said, would you join my master class? Would you be one of my students? And, of course, I was flattered, and I said yes. So I just came back. Uh, Monday, uh, Sunday, this past Sunday, was my, the last of my four days in his master class intensive, which were just the, the, most, the, the most incredible four days of my life as a, as a casting director because... You know, you think you know it all. No matter what you do, you think, yeah, I got that. You know, There's I know. always more. But man, so sometimes you just get slapped around and not in a, in a mean or bad way, but just like, fuck. What, you know, what, I wasn't thinking. I'm just missing it. Sometimes you're just out of touch. You, you are not grounded anymore. And the great thing about Howard is he puts you right back into the space, that grounded, solid space of being an actor, you know, and recognizing your 
uh, your your skills and your talent as a, as an actor. So I'm so happy he invited me, but I'm even happier that I'm able to apply that as my in my work as a That's casting. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, how that how if or how that bleeds over into your other uh, creative endeavor, even even music, well, or as a casting director, or just in your life. It does. I mean. It, it's getting in touch with yourself. It's understanding your... Hold on one second. Oh, she's back. Ellen, I wanted to apologize. Ellen, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to... I'm not judgmental. And I had... My, my, both my parents died from smoking. So I just... I always... Whenever I see it, it's, just, it's, a, it's a visceral response. <laughs> anyway. Um... Yeah. So it. Uh, so it yeah. It, it kind of hit the reset button started, for you a little bit. But it it um, it crosses all platforms. No matter what I do as a musician, as a writer, you know, I'm an author. I'm a You're poet, a poet, right? Yeah. Um, WhisperingLunacies.Amazon.com. I'll post everything on the blog. Triumphant Disaster blog. And so it, it it helps you connect with a place that sometimes just gets away with you as a human being. Yeah. Um, and so, I'm always grateful to be in a class, and I'm especially grateful that Howard invited me to be in his class. And I think anybody, any actor in this town that is not studying on a consistent basis, I don't care how good you think you are, um, being in a class just opens up doors that are not available to you otherwise. So. Yeah. Yeah. You get rusty. You need to keep the cobwebs knocked away. Not even rusty. What happens is you get lazy. You forget. You don't do the work. You don't do the homework. You don't do the research. You, you lose your discipline. Right. You lose your discipline. Yeah. And so getting back into the class helped you be a more disciplined artist. And I, I just think that that's... Is there, do you have a daily practice of any kind in any way? Whether it's uh, an artistic one or maybe sort of a something to kind of ground you like you were talking about losing your sense of being grounded do you you don't even have to say what it is if you don't want no, no, it. but i do and it always has to do with music because i'm a musician and i'm a songwriter and so i'm always writing sometimes it turns into a poem sometimes it turns into a short story sometimes it turns into a movie you know i wrote a a, a short film a few years ago called posey a movie with sally kirkland Academy Award nominee. Who have I actually have talked to about studying with a long time ago? I don't know if she still teaches or... Yeah, she does. does she, she does private coaching. Yeah. She uh, she starred in this movie with, um, with Erica Rhodes, an amazing actress in stand-up. Uh, Jason Stewart. Christopher Pennick, who was on the old uh, Dark Shadow series, the original from That's the cool. 60s. Um, there's a film about a woman who is, who ha is suffering from Alzheimer's. And her granddaughter's, uh, she, her granddaughter has to put her into a, a retirement home. And it's all the sort of sadness and fear and and and, and guilt um, that come out of that kind of a situation. So I wrote and, and I directed that one. And this this came out of you in in sort of an accidental way from yeah, a well, daily practice kind of a thing. It was it was accidental. You know, I meet with a lot of actors. Yeah. And just hang out with them, you know. Which is also unfortunately rare in your profession. It is rare, now. but now at least. But for me, it's not just about 
being a casting director who's looking at your picture and resume, it's about connecting with somebody on a different level. It's connecting with human beings. Yeah. So, Erica Rhodes, who's a friend of mine, uh, she was she was part of the Prairie Home Companion family for 20 years. She started when she was 10 years old mm-hmm. and uh, has been w- working with um, Garrison Keillor ever since. But she does a lot of TV, a lot of films. She's an amazing stand-up comic. And I invited her to come see my band one night. You can edit out as much of this as you want. No, and, I think uh, it all stays. And the band was um, was playing in Santa Monica. She lived in Santa Monica. We met for dinner before. And I asked her, I said, like I ask all of my friends, what are you doing now? What are you working on? She said, well, I just started private coaching with Sally Kirkland. Wow, cool. Uh, and then she said, I have a, I have a, my, we just had to put my grandma in a retirement home. I said, oh, that's sad. And she says, well, kind of sad, but she told me the story about how, I forget what her grandmother's name is. It's like Gladys or Doris or something. But she got to the, to the retirement home, and when they were checking her in, they asked her what her name was, and she said, Posey. Just came out. Came out of nowhere. Because people that are suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's can't remember what they had for lunch, but they can remember childhood names and games and that kind of stuff. So I think that uh, she, um, she, was re- she was, you know, regressing to a time when she was younger. So I said, what? so I said, what happened? She said, well, she kind of fit right in. She was a little scared at first, but she fit right in. I said, what a great story. I said, you know what you should do? You should write this and then give it to Sally. Well, Sally's, you know, she's an Academy Award nominee. She Gold wouldn't want to do winner. this. She wouldn't want to yeah. do this. She's my friend, but not that close, you know. We don't have, I don't have the money to pay her if we did it. I said, all right. Months go by. Um, and uh, I'm sitting in front of the computer one night. <laughs> doing nothing but, you know, finishing up my work at 10 o'clock at night. I'm just wrapping stuff up, playing on Facebook. And, uh, and I just get this bug. I pull up my, my, uh, my Word uh, file, and I, and I type in Posey, a short film by Billy DeMota. And 20 pages later, the sun's coming up. No and, shit, really. And I've, I've got a screenplay. So I sent it to Erica the next day, and she said, this is, this is fucking great. This is exactly what happened. I mean, it's like I was almost channeling. She, she said, there's so many things that are here that, that work. I said, well, take it to Sally. She said, I don't know. Nah, nah, nah. So she did. She took it to Sally. Sally never responded. But I said, you know what? I'm, I wrote this thing. I want, I got to find a director. I want to make this thing happen. And so I put a breakdown out. Posey, 70-year-old ex-movie star, good looks. A Sally Kirkland type. <laughs> Her manager called me. No shit. And said, hey, you know, this sounds like it might be right for Sally. I said, yeah. And so I said, you should see if she wants to do it. And so we, we talked about how much money I didn't have. Uh, Sally got a call from her manager and she said, wait, I've already read that script. That's mine. That belongs to me. Don't, what are they doing in the breakdowns? So it turned out she was all over it. She was, yeah, she was all over it when it, when it almost got taken away from her. Right, like, right, right. Like oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> right. So, now I knew Sally because Sally and I used to teach at Strasbourg together. Mm-hmm. Different classes, but I knew her from seeing her and meeting her there. And um, 
What years was that, by the way? Was, when she right not about when I was teaching? Yeah. 2006, 2005, 6, okay. 7. Right I didn't realize there. that she taught um, that late. Sorry? I didn't know that she was there that late in the I game. I don't know. I think she was actually there before that. Yeah. But anyway, I was just curious. Um, yeah. So I think I came in at her at the end of her thing. Okay. But, so I went over and met with Sally. Erica and I went over and met with Sally. Erica, of course, playing her granddaughter and um, in the movie. And we started production you know, four years ago, right around this time, middle of July, 2012, I think, yeah. The movie went to, I mean, we submitted to like about 300 festivals. It got into 70, did really well, won awards everywhere. Sally won tons of awards, best director for me, best screenplay. Best actor for Sally. We so, traveled all over the country, and I, I went, actually went to Portugal. Oh, you did? To the film festival. Back to the old country. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's 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 pretty fucking amazing. Like, I mean, and this all came from just listening to that little, uh, little bug in your head in the middle of the night. Yeah. Yeah, it from, was... Uh, I mean, you know, sometimes you get... You get inspired by something, and it doesn't like doesn't kick in until months later, you know. But it's still cooking in your head. I really believe that. Yeah, like uh, absolutely. You can have an idea, and then like months later, it's more fleshed out, and you don't consciously even work on it. It's, but you are working on it. Part of you is working on it. Right. I believe that. Yeah. So I, I, we're gonna jump around a little bit, but um, so this the name of this podcast triumphant disaster comes from a poem by rudyard kipling that uh was famously read by dennis hopper on the johnny cash show way back in the day like in the 70s and that's you know the header of the uh of the blog that's constantly up there is him reading it and i bring him up because of colors right so you worked on colors oh man with him and robert duvall and sean penn sean penn so this is a trio of like Fucking godlike figures in my in my yeah in my category. Kid. I mean, so I, I met Robert Duvall once briefly, and when you live here for a long time, you meet everybody or you you, you know whatever. Right. But Robert Duvall was one of those few guys that I actually was a little bit starstruck by because it meant so much to me to meet this guy. Yeah, I met him on the set. Terrific guy. Yeah, really down to earth dude. Yeah. He just seems like a guy right off a ranch or something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he has no, puts on no airs about what he does. He understands, I mean, he's blessed. He understands that he's blessed to be an actor and get paid for it. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's very gracious to the people around him. And with Dennis Hopper, I'm friends with his godson, and I really want him on here to talk about him, but he's very protective about his privacy. He didn't want him to, like, you know. Uh, I don't really even, I don't so, know too much of his family. Yeah, so I don't, I respect that, but it, do you, did you work with Dennis Hopper? Were you there on the set? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, we, I'll give you the sort of the, the story of how it started, how it happened. I, you know, I was, um, I was casting with Jackie Birch, did about, 10, 12 movies with her. And she took a break to have a baby after The Running Man. I did most of the the, the wrap-up work on The Running Man. She was basically at home being pregnant. Mm-hmm. And she decided to take a break. Uh, and Billy, the casting assistant, is now out of work. 
So I started to work for a talent agency. A friend of mine, you know, that I'd met via casting, said, yeah, come work. You can work as an agent. And, you know, and I, the thing was, is I, was all, I was in sales for so long. I didn't know if I wanted, I loved being a buyer, you know, as a casting director. I didn't know if I wanted to get back into sales, but I said yes, and I, because I needed a job, but I, it wound up costing me money. I wasn't making any money. I wound up investing money in her business and losing money. Unemployed. Uh-huh. Or underemployed. Not doing what I wanted to do. So I was sending out resumes. Now, you have to remember that when I first left Jackie, I sent out resumes to everybody. I I sent resumes to production companies, to people, to uh, to producers and directors I'd worked with in the past. wasn't getting any response. I gave a letter, uh, a resume to my friend Joe Peck. Now, people who listen to this podcast may know Joe Peck as a long time. I since passed away, but a longtime talent manager who's represented everybody. Kathy Moriarty, Danny Aiello, uh, uh, Chris Penn, um, wow. just, I mean, every, uh, uh, Michael Madsen, anybody that he, he became friends with everybody, and then he, because he knew so many people in the studio system, he would find jobs for them, and he became sort of the Sort of natural manager, yeah. natural manager yeah. Right. Not any, nothing was ever signed. He just would, he would send people out and he would, they'd get jobs. <laughs> and so I gave him my, he used to come by the set because, uh, uh, I mean, he used to, he used to hey, come to my office because he would always bring talent by, right? I gave him my resume and I said, I'm looking for a job, keep me in mind. He was best friends with Chris Penn, who was also his client. They were, uh, they were. I was a big fan of that guy. Right. They were over at Dennis's house one night and. And Chris and uh, Joe Peck. His name's he's Joe Peck. He's like this. He talks like this from Brooklyn. Skinny guy from New York. Anybody who knows Joe Peck knows that that's a spot-on impression. <laughs> hey, what are you what are you working on, Billy? Yeah, yeah, fucking a, fuck. <laughs> I wonder if there's any video of him. I'd like to get it up. He's great. So he gave my resume to Dennis. Because Dennis, here's the thing: is they had already hired Lauren Lloyd. Who has gone on to do some incredible producing? She hadn't really cast a whole bunch, and I think they just wanted a male presence on the set. So she gave, uh, he gave Dennis and I guess Lauren my resume, and I got a call when I was on, I was visiting my family for Christmas, and my sister comes in and says. Uh, Hey, uh, Dennis Hopper's office is on the phone. <laughs> she asked if I said, well, what are you talking about? You know, people knew I was looking for a job. Somebody's fucking with me. And it was, it was, they asked if I could come in down and meet Lauren Lloyd, uh, who was the casting director, and Dennis, and uh, Sean Penn, who was producing the movie. He's the one who hired Dennis. In fact, he sort of pulled Dennis out of his... Uh, he was he was kind of blacklisted after uh, after oh, this movie, American called, movie or something. No, you know, it was the it was the movie that they did in 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 Peru, right? The last that he was movie just like yeah. just fried hard the, the whole time. They yeah, were frying on some major. I can't remember the name, but I'll get it later. The last movie, the last movie. Yeah, okay. He has uh, that cowboy hat in it, I think. Right, and it's the yeah. story of the Native American, the natives in Peru 
who thought they were making a who thought they were really killing each other in the western they made their own movie with wicker cameras and were killing each other it was like it was a disaster yeah, Wasn't it, it like Apocalypse Now was was some that gave them the, it was like his first break after right, right. like a, almost a decade right, exactly. of yeah. of nothing yeah well the movie actually when it was put together got pretty good reviews but the problem was in production they were and Dennis told me this story about how he would be on the set and they were all so high and so paranoid that all because they would they're spending like a big chunk of their budget on drugs. <laughs> The that, film budget was going to that, right? So what he would do is he would, he would, uh, he would bury the the drugs, <coughs> actually dig big holes and bury, and they could never figure out where they put them. They'd forget. They forget. Dennis <laughs> Dennis knew where the drugs were buried. <laughs> anyway, that, that's the, sort of the end of his career for a while. Yeah. And Sean said, "I want him to direct Colors. I want him to do it." And uh, and so I went. And I met with them and. Uh, and it was great. I mean, I was sort of Lauren Lloyd's right hand man, and did a lot of the. I was the casting associate of the movie and worked, uh, you know, helping her find new talent. I had done, you know, I don't mean to, to diminish her input, but I had done you know, more movies than she had. I mm-hmm. cast more movies than she had, and so um, it was important for her to have somebody around who knew the agents and had the relationships and so. And also, Dennis would take me in his 1978 Seville out to meet gang members that we had arranged meetings with. Wow! At two in the morning, at, at, at you know, at, in Boyle Heights, at two in the morning in Venice, at two in the morning in, in South Central, and we'd go to a park or we'd go to a big park. Just you and Dennis, or Sean too, or just me and Dennis. Wow. Me and Dennis in a Polaroid camera. No shit. And, uh, you know, people would just start to... You'd see all these cars, like when we went to went downtown, and we had a, a neutral uh, parking lot, and uh, all these red car Mercedes and Porsches and Cadillacs, all, or, it, was the, it was the Bloods. You know? Yeah. They're all pulling into the lot, and all the cars are bouncing and stuff. And, and, you know, we get out of our car, and they're all like, yeah, man, you Dennis Hopper, man, you was in that Easy Rider, man. That wasn't that blue velvet, man. What was that shit on your face, man? You? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were t- there was a kindred spirit with these guys. So, you know, they were dancing. They were pulling out their do-rags. They were, they were popping their trunks. And, you know, a fucking machine amazing experience. guns and hand grenades. and You saw that shit? Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. And I have a Polaroid camera. That was my weapon. Yeah. Uh, so, so we would see people. We'd take pictures, you know, of them and their cars, write their numbers on the back of the Polaroid, and we actually used a lot of their. Uh, oh, here comes as references. Oh, there's here, colors right here there. Here comes color, color, It's the five zero. Color. So it's Demoda on the beatbox. That's me. So, so, so yeah, that that was a. It was quite an experience, you know. And then there was one day when they came, we were casting out of Lionsgate on, over on Bundy uh, when they were over there, and uh, the producers. Well, there were a few different production companies over there. They found out we had gang members coming over, and at around noon, you saw all these Mercedes <laughs> driving out of the lot. You know, all the producers driving <laughs> as, all the, as all the other Mercedes were driving in. You know? That's funny. Yeah, they were kind of scared. So, yeah, so that was a great experience. And I used to hang out. With, I would go to Hollenbeck and play basketball with Sean and, and, and the East L.A., you know, 
gang members and stuff. And they, he, he was bonding. Basically, what he was doing, he was putting himself into that character. If you saw Colors, yeah, you know about Pac-Man and, and his character. He was, you know, he was he wanted to gain a sort of a certain level of fame in that community, and so, and so or not fame, but. Uh, Connection with him. Yeah, yeah. And he would go and hang out and, uh, and you know, just be with him, you know? He, he actually got a 1978 Plymouth Fury or 1980 that he would use as a... Um, he would basically take it as a... Use that as his, as, as his car. And he would drive around and in, the, in the parking lot of, of, at night when everybody would go home of Lionsgate... He would just do donuts and, and work. On, so all the stunt driving you see in that movie is Sean. He did it. Driving. I mean, they, I think they had a stunt driver, but he did most of it because he wanted to. He wanted to be that guy going around corners and in that car. And they, they used that car in the movie, and which is pretty amazing. But he was so into the character and so into connecting with the people that he was working with. You know, we got to, and we, you know, we got a chance to hire some great new actors, you know, for that movie. Damon Wayans. Uh... Gerardo, if you remember, Rico Suave. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, there's a lot of people that we put in that movie that had, hadn't really even done film before, you know? And, uh, and it was pretty exciting. You know, I think Don Sean Cheadle's Penn does that first, a lot. Uh, was he in it? John Cheadle's No shit. Movie. He must have been like 12. Okay, it was a young <laughs> Rocket. Played Rocket. But yeah, but Sean Penn, Sean Penn hires a lot of non-actors as a director, I think, and directs them really, really fucking well. He sort of uses the old Clint Eastwood model where, you know, you're, you're the people that you study with. How you doing, man? Good, man. Uh, can, can you have a bring me some more water with you? Okay, thank you. Um, so, yeah, he's, uh, he's, he likes to work within his, his area of comfort. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the people that he's uh, studied with, you know, and that he's hung out with. Has some loyalty, too. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 You seem like a kind of guy that's that has that sort of integrity to me as well. Yeah, he's a he's a cool guy. You know, people think he's a little abrasive sometimes, but I remember when all the negative press on colors because he punched some guy in Venice. We were shooting on the beach, and uh, he uh, and I would hang out on the set as much as I could. There was a there was a. a, a a day when some guy, one of the extras on the beach in Venice, we were shooting down there. I don't know if you remember this. If you saw the movie, you know the scene. It's where been they, years, but they they, they hop the, the car. Cars chasing. They, they he hops and running after the uh, the guy who's uh, it's Glenn Plummer, the guy with the braids. Mm-hmm. And they go into this restaurant. And they smash the window, and he smashes his head on the, the thing. That was all done in Venice, so we needed extras. One of the extras, while we were on a break, said to Sean Penn, Hey, man, give me your autograph, man. And Sean says, You know what? And Sean's really good about it. At the time, he had he was dating Madonna. Yeah. Um, and uh, he said, I can't, I can't do it right now, man. I'm just, you know. And the guy's gotten there to beef with him. And he said, What are you, man? You, are you too big, man? You can't, you. You too big a guy, you can't sign my autograph off for my kid. This is right in the middle of the shoot. Right, right in the middle of the shoot. There's a little break. Yeah. And the guy spit on Sean Penn. And, you know, don't spit on Sean Penn, you know. If you, if you, no, the dude can box. Right. The dude can box. And so they, there was a little scrap there. The police came. 
you know, of course, the paparazzi were all there. You know, Sean Penn explodes on the set. But really, he was pushed. I and, and it was have a strong time. opinion about the guy the paparazzi. was kind of following him around. You know, same thing happened at a. We were at. Um, it's not there anyway. I think it was called the Marketplace or something. It was a restaurant uh, in Venice mm-hmm. where. It was me, Dennis Hopper, Robert Solo, who was one of the producers, Sean and Madonna. We're all sitting having lunch. Uh, and, you know, paparazzi start to come in and they started... I fucking party. hate paparazzi, dude. Yeah. I don't even care when they get punched. He says, can we just we'll talk outside, you know? And, and they're not there to take his picture. They're there to create a scene. Okay. And he... He's got a temper. He so. fell into it. Also, he's, he was very protective. He loved Madonna so much. And so, you know, when they start to confront him and her... That was, in, that was the line. Yeah, it was the line. So, you know, I mean, there were times when he would get... He would... He, gave, he garnered a reputation of being a bad boy or a, yeah, or a but, pain in the ass. But really, it's because... When you see how paparazzi behave in reality... They, I think they deserve to get socked 90% of the time. That's true. And I've met him, I met Sean Penn briefly one time at a bar, and he was super fucking cool. Super cool. Man. Shooting the shit with the bartender and tipping him well. Just a really just cool dude. So yeah. I don't buy into any of that shit when they, yeah. when they talk shit about that. That's true. Um, so earlier, and I just want to, we're just going to touch and go on this, but I think we need to. When I said I feel like you're a guy of a... That of integrity as well. Part of the reason from that, aside from just what I know of you and, and meeting you, is, and we talked about, we're not going to talk about this long, but I feel like we need to touch on the fact that you are uh, quite adamant about protecting actors from. You're probably going to talk about the, the casting director workshop. Just for like a minute. Okay. Just let, because, let, let because me, this is what people know you well right. for. Let me lay the foundation. But I don't because want people, to make this about that. I know, but, but, uh, but I do want to say something that's sort of like clearing the air for anybody who's listening to this, and I don't know how big the audience is. And it's, what, it's sort of my, it's my, my mission now to let people know that I have never said that workshops should be shut down. What I have said is that casting directors who teach a real class with a real curriculum uh, who are qualified to teach uh, be allowed to do so I have great Mark Teschner uh, Melissa Scoff um, Vicky Goggin uh, I I have so many friends of mine yeah I know of a couple that are really good too yeah Uh, they're not a lot but there are some great ones and I have and I applaud their ability and their right to teach what I get vilified for is because people think that I'm trying to take away, I'm trying to shut down workshops. What I'm trying to shut down is pay to play. I'm trying to shut down the one night single event things where 20 actors who sign up, sometimes, and it's not even in a class setting nowadays, it's in a one-on-one format where you go in, you spend five minutes with a casting director, a casting assistant. An assistant, usually, yeah. Uh, very seldom the casting director. And they basically, you read for them, you perform, you give them your picture and resume. And your money. They you give them the money. You, you, they fill out a sort of really stupid evaluation sheet that has nothing to do with education. And uh, it's thank you very much. They may give you a little bit of critique. They may give you a little bit of feedback. But that's not teaching. That's not a class. And no. according to AB 1319, which is the state law, and according to the CSA guidelines, that you cannot... You cannot take money from an actor if you don't provide them with a class. So, uh, so, so you pay your actors are paying to, for an interview. They're basically paying for what used to be 
a general interview. In those and, and if you ever remember general interviews, it's where a casting director would invite an actor to meet with them for coffee at their office, five minutes, sometimes a reading. Yeah. You take on different kind of formats depending on what it is. But it was always. But now, what's happening in those general interviews are are still happening, but for a fee. And it's the fee that bugs me. So yeah, and so we're, we won't get into any more than this. But other than like whether whether you think it's fine or you don't, you know, you, you kind of stuck your dick out there on that chopping block by believe you know you believing saying what you believe in, and you still do, and you, and you know, so that's I admire yeah, that. Well, you know what? Fuck them if they don't understand. My my I my biggest problem is that my colleagues. My casting Society of America colleagues and my other casting colleagues that are not in the CSA have vilified me because they don't understand what I'm trying to do. Which or, you just tried to... Which I just tried to cor- explain. Yeah, or they're clarify. saying that I'm trying to shut down all the workshops because they want to continue doing what they're doing, which is the pay-to-play thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is, is that every actor knows what they pay for. Every actor, every casting director knows why the actor's there. It's not to demystify anything. It's not to, to, to teach you about the process. It's, you know, sure, you can learn something, but that's not the intent. The intent is for casting directors to, uh, to get paid to watch actors do scenes. There's what do you my think, telephone. What do you think, like... Are you going to call? What do you think... Um, Happened? Where I mean, are casting directors somehow more busy now, or something? What, what do you? Where did that change? How did that happen? No, they're not more busy. They're more greedy. Okay. What's what, What's happened is that the and I and I say greedy when I and I don't mean every casting director. Of course, other casting of course, give a lot of time away and are very you know. But you know, I don't care if you love your grandmother and you call her on Sunday and you donate to charity and you love puppies. If you if you exploit the acting community and try to call it something else to rationalize your behavior, that's a bad thing. And I think what's happening is that the casting community is I don't remember exactly what the question was, but the casting community vilifies me because they're trying to protect something instead of trying to change that thing. I was I was asking how like back in the day and it wasn't necessarily easy, but you could you know, you could meet an actor oh, could right. meet a casting director. Yeah, it's. I just, mean, they could. They, they, yes, they do have their. their and now it's TV like casting. The walls I mean, are up, is, you know? is like trying to meet people is is tough because it's uh, it's hard. But my my contention is that if you've got three hours, two and a half hours in an evening to get paid four hundred bucks to meet actors, you can find that time during the day. You know, it's funny how you you don't have any time in your life until somebody gives you a check. Yeah. You know, so that's what bugs me. It's like find the time. Donate your time to the to the uh, SAG Foundation uh, Casting Access Project workshops. Go to the SAG Conservatory and do get become a part of their speaker bureau. You know, most of the casting assistants that are doing workshops, you know, have been doing it for a year or maybe two. And I, you know, frankly, they may be great teachers, but I don't know what they have to share. So yeah, all right. Anyway, I just think that they should be more responsible to the people that they owe their career to. And that's what I do. Fair enough. We're going to move on from that then. Just let me just say one other thing, and it's yeah. not going to be about workshops specifically, but it's about, it's about 
Yeah, I can't change the way people think. <clears throat> I can't change the way people do their business. I can't make somebody be nice or kind or giving or or open or caring. I can only lead by example. And hopefully that example will infect the people that see what I do. Yeah. That's all I can do. Respect. Okay. We're going to move away from that. It just felt like that's something we kind of had to talk about because no, you're pretty, you you know, pretty well known for it. No, we're keeping everything, dude. So just a couple more things. We're going we're gonna to wrap up because we both have some stuff we got out of here pretty soon. But I had to ask you a couple things. I'm a huge – okay. So I was watching – I'm a huge Billy Bob Thornton fan since way back in the day. I saw many years ago some interview with him. He was talking about how he was literally fucking starving. I think he was working at a Shakey's or something or selling pencils or something. I forget what it was, but he was not, he was not, he had to go to the hospital because he was like living on potatoes or something like that. Like he had like a heart attack or something. It was some crazy shit. And then he got a movie called Chopper, Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town. That's correct. How did he get that? Yes, he did. Well, it starts with. I met Billy Bob. He came in to read for me a few times, and uh, we became friends. Mm-hmm. Really good friends. We started writing together, and in fact, before Chopper Chicks was even uh, uh, a movie or even an idea, Billy Bob and I used to hang out right up here in Glendale at a place called Shakers. So it was called Salt Shakers then. We used to brainstorm about <laughs> about what um, about what he wanted to do with his career and what we could do to try to. You know, get our our writing out there and whatever. So we did. We came up with a um, with a plan to do. He was a great writer. You know, he's he a fantastic writer. And he hadn't written anything. Uh, the thing is, he wrote a few things for my class at uh, when I was studying with Howard Fine. No shit. This was in the late. This is like in the sort of late eighties. Uh, and so I said, you know, why don't we put together a showcase? So we designed a two-night show at the Tiffany Theater. You probably don't remember. They I do remember. Actor Studio used to do stuff on there. Yeah. It was on Sunset, yeah? It was on Sunset yeah. and just uh, west of Los Angeles. Right. And, uh, and we rented this, the, the, the Tiffany because I had a friend of mine who was uh, the house manager there for two nights. And uh, we put on a thing called Swine Before Pearls. And it was for industry. It was an industry, industry showcase. All stuff that Billy Bob had written. Uh, I directed the, the things that were a bunch of little one acts and scenes. A lot of his friends and my friends that we cast, and we put it on two nights. We sent out invitations. Uh, we got about 150 people the first night in a 99-seat theater. Wow. And the second night... Not because, easy in this town, no. by the way. And second night, because it was... The word of mouth got around. There were 200 people there that night, standing room only. Um, and uh, it was absolutely awesome. So uh, Billy used to come in and read for me a lot, and uh, I finally brought him in for this movie, Chopper Chicks, and uh, he kicked it out of the park, and we just, you know, we became good friends from that point on, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. And I still see him every once in a while. I just was trying to find the, the a, a recent picture of him, but I, I can't find it, but... Um, Seems like a great guy. He's a really good guy. He's uh, he's a, an old and dear friend, and um, 
Do you know Barry Markowitz by any chance? I don't. Okay. He's, I just I, I was um, going to say I just wish I knew I could see Billy Moore. I haven't seen him in so long. He was the DP in uh, a lot of his movies, Sling Blade and All the Pretty Horses and mm. some other stuff. And they're good. Anyway, I know him. I thought maybe you might know him as well. I'm going to ha- try to have him on the on the show as well. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, yeah, he's uh, Billy Bob's a good man. So, and the, another thing I wanted to ask you about, and uh, we'll wrap it up here in a second. Um, okay. So I'm a huge fan of Ed Harris as well. Yeah. And a uh, huge fan. And I read a book, and I unfortunately can't remember the name of the book. It's called You're Either In or You're In the Way. That's the one. That's the one. So that these, was the Miller these two brothers. guys, they're, were they twins or just brothers? Miller brothers, they're twins. Yeah, they're twins. Really inspirational book. I'll put that up on the, on the blog right. as well. So I read this, fucking love this book. These guys just struggled and just pinched together whatever they could and, and, and met... Ed Harrison and Alley with their script literally gave their script yeah, to him like right that. Right outside the Castro Theater in San Francisco. Just, just throwing a hail they mary were, to they, try they to get had the, They had their laptop up. They were smoking cigarettes and joking out by the dumpster. And uh, it was a movie. And they had they, they'd already shot some footage in Arizona about baseball. Yeah. And, you know, Ed Harris is a huge baseball fan. They basically gave him the short story, uh, the synopsis. And he said, okay, call my agent. I'll do it. And he fucking did it. It took a little time, and it was unbelievable hard work. But well, he fucking did it. The reason it took it. time is because whenever you get the agents involved, yeah, and they want, I've you know, ten percent of nothing is is you know not, is not they don't like that. So. Well, no agent, yeah, exactly. No agent wants wants their guy to do a, a, a tiny right, movie. Right, that's right. So, so basically, what we try to do is we get it. We make we try to make the best deal we could with the agent, make Ed happy. But he, he eventually just loved. And I, if you saw the movie. It's amazing. Uh, I haven't seen the movie. I haven't yeah, seen the movie. It's so good. But it's amazing the way it happened. And what the name of it is now. I think I have it. It was Touching Home? Touching Home, right. Touching Home. It was called something else that I always remember it by, but. Uh, Probably the book. Yeah. But yeah, that was great. And Ed was a dream to work with, you know? I mean, I wasn't on the set for that one, but uh, everybody loved Ed. And he's such a giving, you know amazingly supportive actor to the people around him that's so, the real deal yeah that's what the, the best deal. ones I mean, that's, do you know that's that's why we're in this business you know we're in there in this business not just to be you know not just to have a a career as an actor but to, to, to kind of connect with other people and have a human connection and i think that that's what we miss so much all right i think we're going to wrap it up and um it's been fucking great, man. Thanks this for has taking been great. a few I'm minutes so and shooting the sure. shit with me. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on, dude. Oh, I got to go put good. money in my meter. I'm All right, man. Late. Okay. So that was Billy DeMoto, you guys. Hope you guys enjoyed uh, those stories as much as I probably obviously did. Um, we might, like I said in the beginning, have another um, episode at some point. I really, uh, I was really into those stories, and he's he's a cool guy. Um, so we have many more cool guests coming up. I don't want to say who they are. I'd rather you just subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss anything. And if you like uh, what we're doing here, if you could just leave a, a rating and review there on iTunes, it would really help. It just, uh, it's not about likes. It's about Apple, you know, promoting the show. So that's how they do it. And, um, everything that we talked about, um, all the little references, movies and stuff I posted up on the triumph and disaster blog, triumph and disaster blog.com. You can see it on the, the Billy DeMota podcast number 10 there. And um, hope you guys enjoy what we're doing. We have some really cool guests coming up. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.